0: Hi everyone, it's Tony Tonkin here from Kids Matter. Glad that we could be having this conversation today about a subject which is of interest, hopefully, to all of us. And uh, the reason why I wanted to put together this particular podcast is that I came upon an article that was in the Australian Association of Social Workers journal. And uh, so this is a peer-reviewed journal. And this particular article is of interest to all of us who are interested in kids, I think, because it talks about frontline workers. So the title is Frontline Workers' Challenges in Hearing Children's Voices in Family Support Services. And uh, <clears throat> the, the reason why this article is important because it highlights the um, need for children's voices to be a part of the process when it comes to... To evaluating whether kids or not should be heard and whether their voices are heard in the first place and as it turns out believe it or not they're not and this this particular research was done with um, with uh, who was it now it was communities um, it was with an NGO and I'll be able to find it in just a second um, Uniting Communities, I think it was. So um, it was through Uniting Care rather, a non government organisation in Queensland. Um, And it was research done with about 40 odd uh, workers within that particular service. Um, And it is something which all policy makers, all practitioners should be aware of. Um, And it does stress the need to Um, to apply Article 12 of the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child, which states that children have a right to be heard and participate in decision-making. And Article 12, I guess, requires organisations to take children's views into account. And the reality is that they that normally... (coughs) Um, that most most decision makers within the child protection system in particular do not consider the views of children as having any distinct value and therefore they're not uh, they don't appear to be relevant Um, one of the things that was highlighted to me is that um, there is a sense of tokenism towards the experience of children's lives and how they have led them And we must remember that children themselves are um, the experts in their own lives. And certainly the argument, I guess, as this article points out, is that children often uh, are ignored because they're either seen as too young, um, they're seen as the property of uh, the government in some cases, and parents in others, and professionals in others, and that they don't um they're not unable to make the decisions that they need to make for their for the betterment of their own well-being but the reality is that that's not the case that kids should have a voice it is their right to have a voice and that it is our right as professionals to make sure that they do um and one of the other things that it does mention which i think is quite critical is that um The study found that children were commonly constructed as vulnerable and in need of protection within family support, which meant basically that their rights to be heard and participate in decision-making under Article 12 were not being realised. This finding confirms commonly held assumptions about children in family support services, that they are too young, too traumatised or too innocent to be involved or exposed to adult conversations and hence children are excluded from participating. That's a direct quote from the article. And I guess the significant aspect of that is that um, because children are seen as young, traumatized, and I've heard these these reasons myself over the years that (coughs) workers have said you know, we, we can't involve the kids because uh, discussing what has happened to them is traumatizing for them. So we must shield them from all of that as if children don't have any ability to be able to recover. One of the, I guess one of the issues for me has always been the exclusion of children from those discussions with the, with the view to um, not seek out other solutions to the problem particularly the problem of them being removed from their parents i remember i had an incident where it seemed important to talk to for the kids who were older who were 16 down to 9 i think to talk about how they felt about their father they wanted to be well i was told that they by their parents that they wanted to be returned to uh, their parents but they were fearful of their father and that was primarily because their father did a lot of yelling um, and he yelled at the animals and uh, the kids are really smart kids and they're quite sensitive to all of that stuff and I believed that the children possibly were able to process a lot of what had happened to them and perhaps needed to talk to their father about their experiences of his behavior. And that would have been a helpful uh, exercise to have undertaken because the kids were quite articulate children and they would have been able to talk to him. And I talked to him about how that would look, what sort of, um, how he could respond to them telling them uh, things that he had done that they found stressful and unhelpful. And he was prepared to just sit and listen to what they had to say not make any comment not try and justify what had happened he was prepared just to sit there and listen to what they had to say now i thought that that would be helpful for the children to do that but the department clearly think that for all the reasons that i've just offered that they're vulnerable that they'll be re-traumatized all that sort of stuff that therefore it wouldn't be helpful um and <coughs> and then unless unless we'd start to look for a different approach for a different way of viewing the way children are likely to respond and um, and give them some influence over what it is that they would like to happen to them so in this instance if these children wanted to be returned home how would they like their environment to be how would they like their father to be that would ensure their safety? Now that's a really important question to ask and I can't see why it can't be a question that can be asked of him and that his behaviour in fact be monitored by the children. So you could do um, a weekly or fortnightly checkup on how they're responding to his behaviour or how he's behaving and what it is like. If he doesn't choose to do the behaviours of the past which he admits he has done and are unhelpful to the kids. If he chooses to change his behaviour then surely the children are likely to acknowledge that, celebrate it in a way because it makes them feel safer and to find ways to move on in terms of the relation, the dynamics within the relationship. I see that as positive, but uh, clearly those people in control uh, believes that the children will be traumatised all this stuff I've just talked about uh, the kids are vulnerable all that sort of stuff um, another important quote I think from this article is that it says currently children are not seen as the client which means they are not provided with the opportunity to have their views heard and be considered as part of decision making about matters that affect their lives child inclusive practice can be possible only when intersecting conceptual program and organizational challenges and pressure points are addressed. So the important thing about child inclusive practice can only be possible, can only be possible when intersecting conceptual program and organizational challenges and pressure points are addressed. So these issues about the kids being being re-traumatized and the kids not being able to have the conversations that they need to have and whether kids are old enough to have those conversations, whatever. Um, those, Those concepts, those misconceptions about what is required need to be addressed and practitioners need to understand that there may be different ways of working apart from the way they've worked in the past. And to give the kids the voice is perhaps an important step in that direction. Yet requiring practitioners to engage children without a significant paradigm shift in the way children are conceptualised will not result in more genuine participation by children. The accounts of this study's practitioners illustrate that practitionism overrides children's voices in family support services. This protectionism reveals a persistent social narrative and construct where practitioners and parents View the children as vulnerable, lacking capacity and agency, which is consistent with findings reported in other child protection services research. So they're saying there that that it's not just the practitioners; it's also the children, the parents of these children, um, uh, buy buy into this social narrative um, where the children are viewed as vulnerable, lacking capacity and agency to contribute to the change that's required so that they can have better outcomes for them. Um, and that it's really important that that sense of protectionism is addressed and that workers um, actually uh, consider, reflect upon their version of protectionism and whether that in effect is helpful. And I think one of the things practitioners need to do is find different ways to practice. And you know, I've always believed that practising uh, social work or therapy is really like an experiment. You'll try certain things and certain some things will work and some things won't. At the end of the day, whether th- something works will depend upon the response that you get from the client. And in this case, the children are the client and they can do an assessment themselves by having conversations with a therapist, counsellor or social worker about their experiences and how they have been perceived and what has changed. It goes on to say it has also been shown to be unsafe because when we do not ask, hear and listen to children who are at risk, practitioners are potentially making them more at risk of harm and abuse. So when children don't have a voice, when they can't say what it is that they need to say, when they are unable to articulate the experiences that they've had with a perpetrator of violence or abuse, then that is further creating more risk of harm. Um, and it goes on, you know, while practitioners need to assess risk and manage resulting safety concerns, they also need to safely support children to develop and exercise self determination and agency so they are not inhibited in their healthy development. So, part of the appropriate form of development that children need to have is to address the trauma that's happened in their lives. And normally the best way to address that is to address that with the perpetrator of that trauma in a constructive and meaningful way. So that isn't where the perpetrator yells, screams and shouts and perpetrates further abuse. That is where the perpetrator listens to what has been said and accepts that and acknowledges that appropriately and then proceeds not to behave in ways that were traumatic to the children. The findings of this study, it also says, along with other research, suggests that disrupting the culture of protectionism and paternalism entrenched the system such as as child protection is essential. So the findings of the study, along with all the other research that they've done, uh, suggests that the culture of protectionism and paternalism entrenched this system we have around child protection and the way it's conducted and the way um, people respond to it and the way practitioners think about the way that they're working in this particular space. So we need to shift the paradigm away from the current way of working and seek other ways of working as well. And I just want to conclude with three conclusions that this research paper comes up with that I think are important, are paramount. The first one is a recognition of children as individuals with rights. That is fundamental. And how often do we exclude these children from there, from having the rights they need to have in order to express themselves appropriately. And it says this is key as recognition leads to being valued and being resourced. Recognition and children's participation are directly linked. And the second point is the creation of a culture that values children and their voices in family support services as part of the care continuum. So it's important therefore to be able to have a culture where we accept and acknowledge the voices of children so that they can so they are heard and their needs are therefore met. I mean after all, if we're not listening to them, we're not hearing them and we're not able to evaluate what their particular needs are because at the end of the day it also always seems to be about risk aversion and about the organization's needs being met over and above that of the children. And finally a commitment to embedding child inclusivity in family support programs and building an appropriate support and resources within contracts and service delivery to do this essential practice. So within the contractual arrangements formulated between uh, the government for example and organizations the government providing the funding, the organizations that provide their work or potentially hopefully the best outcomes that there should be some sort of contractual arrangement as to the way by which they work, which includes the voices of children. And uh, they, they argue in this paper that this is an essential practice that should be implemented by all concerned. Um, so I just wanted to just provide um, a brief overview of uh, this particular paper, which, uh, if anybody wishes to look it up, is. Uh, Frontline Workers Challenging in Hearings, Children's Voices in Family Support Services um, That was published, uh, well it just came out the other day, in the uh, so Australian Social Work, which is the Australian Social Work Journal. So I hope some of that is helpful. We want to have a discussion, a further discussion around uh, children and their voices being heard. If you wish to participate in this further, please go to the Child Protection Party Facebook page have a conversation with us there about how you think children's voices should be heard and whether or not you believe if your children are in care are their voices heard and if not why not and what is it that you could do to advocate for their voices and what you could do to help us and remember if you wish to have a conversation with us about any of these particular issues, then uh, it's important to contact uh, the Child Protection Party, organise a time when we can get together and uh, we could do a video or audio conversation with you about how you're experiencing the Child Protection System and what it is that you think can be done to change it and what you think we could do at the Child Protection Party that will necessarily change uh, some of the outcomes for kids now I recognize that there are many different and uh, wide-ranging circumstances that impact the reasons why children are removed um, in this instance this isn't our focus the re- the focus really is about the voices of kids and how they can be heard because my guess is that if we listen more and more to kids and we became more creative about how we would resolve some of the traumatic experiences that they've been through, one of those traumatic experiences of course being in care, then I'm sure that we'll be able to find an appropriate solution that will work in the child's best interest. So thanks everybody for being with me on Kids Matter and we'd like you to follow us and uh, also where possible to contact us on Facebook and also on the Child Protection Party YouTube channel and subscribe to that and follow some of the fat posts that we put up there. Thanks everybody, look after yourself, and more importantly, be safe.